Buongiorno a tutti from Bologna, Italy. This is the Northern Minor Podcast, International Edition. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. You know, I don't take many vacations. I actually take no vacations, but I do travel once in a while. I'm a happy workaholic. I'm so happy to be out. We're going to Bologna, then we're going to hit Ravenna for a couple of days, check out the mosaics. So famous and incredibly charming mosaics in Ravenna, which I haven't seen since I was six years old, but had a huge impact on me. And then we're going to top it off in Florence and hopefully go to the Uffizi. Hopefully get in there. I should probably buy my ticket now. And uh, yeah, and then continue on back home. And so, yeah, I'm looking at this gold flash crash. I don't know. I... I say to myself, is this what passes for a crash these days? A drop just below $1,700 and we're going to call it a crash? Whatever happened to Black Monday when it was like 20%? This is like 4.5%. Are we going to even get out of bed? That sounds like a stock, like that sounds like a Tuesday with Amazon or something that had like a bad day or something. Like so... Anyways, I, maybe the main headline writers are on vacation and the, you know, the backup writers, headline writers are coming in and trying to make a mark. It wouldn't shock me. Or it's the Twitter sphere is actually kind of creating this headline and being, shall we say, uh, hyperbolic. They are exaggerating. Uh, and don't forget Strunk and White, the elements of style. When you are writing, this is a profound point if you don't know it. Always understate. Do not overstate. When you say it's very, very hot out, just say it's hot out. And if you need to, say it's very hot out, but do not say it's very, very hot out. Or if it's just hot out, don't say it's extremely hot out in terms of writing, because this actually undermines your point. It actually sounds hotter when just saying it's very hot. When you say it's very, very hot, you start thinking more about the writer than the content and how the writer is trying to exaggerate. And that's sort of my, you know, my panoramic view of this story, this so-called gold flash crash. Now, an interesting thing about it, though, and apparently this happened on low volume, I think it was a Sunday. Now, what's interesting for me is this divergence that's happening with the 10-year bond, because the 10-year bond perked back up to 1.32%, at least as I record this on a Tuesday. And meanwhile, gold is kind of tumbling a little bit. So what's interesting about that is within the inflation, deflation context, so we consider, okay, the 10-year bond, the yields are going higher, so we expect there to be more inflation from that story. Yet, on the gold side, gold is tumbling. So that would suggest that there's not as much inflation. And what it really tells me is either these are just two different markets that think differently, and that's completely, totally possible. I think there was a good jobs report. So, okay, so that bumps up and maybe that doesn't affect gold so much. Or maybe the good jobs report does affect gold and gold gets hit lower, right? Because, okay, there's more jobs, so, okay, we don't have need the fear trade anymore. We can dump our gold because jobs are coming back. So why hold our gold? There's no disaster that's coming. So you see how competing narratives sort of are at work here because 
you almost have the reopening trade, say jobs report, you know, bond yields spike higher because, okay, that means there's going to be more, a hotter economy, right? And therefore inflation. And meanwhile, the gold trade isn't trading on the inflation trade. It's trading on the fear trade, which is, okay, we don't have to be as fearful anymore. This is just one of the myriad of interpretations one can have and almost back to Strunk and White. It's like, this is why, you know, I think literary criticism, and I'm not a fan of most literary criticism, just the basic, simple stuff, the classic stuff. The more modern stuff is, frankly, I, it's not my cup of tea. But my point is, story analysis is quite useful with financial markets because there are several different ways of looking at it, and we have competing narratives, right? And so, and then you could also say, well, maybe gold, you know, for a, it's, it's been a pretty questionable relationship between inflation and gold. Over the long term, it does seem to hold. But from the short to medium term, gold has not been reliable at all as an inflation hedge. You know, in the last year, it's basically come down. And what have we seen in inflation? Uh, we've seen those numbers go up, and those are the, the official inflation numbers. And, you know, we see the copper to gold ratio. Copper is strong, gold is weakening. So is, what's the real inflation hedge? Should we, is copper a better inflation hedge? And I think it probably is. It's probably a more honest inflation hedge, for lack of a better term. So interesting, interesting, as we try and sort out these things from our beautiful hotel room here. I think I got upgraded because this is one of the nicest. It's like a luxury hotel from the 1960s, Hotel Internazionale in Bologna. I think I got the upgrade. Anyway, a uh, cool show coming up. We have Tim Gitzel, CEO of Cameco. And what's so interesting about what he says here, after you know every call he talks about supply risk, but then he, he caps off the call by saying that the uranium market is oversupplied. And what I liked about that is it's like, oh, well, isn't that true? Isn't that true? We, you know, for those, I've followed the uranium trade quite closely since, you know, since I got in this business, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I started becoming invested, interested in uranium stocks. And, you know, the elephant in the room is for the last eight years, 10 years, it's been an oversupplied market. And that's the thing that all these uranium bulls are kind of, it's always about this five years in the future thing, but they've been saying that for a long time. And it sounds right. Like, I, it's like, yeah, the, even Tim Gitzel's saying it, but for the time being, this is an oversupplied market. So really interesting stuff on that hand. And another is this idea, the EU is designating nuclear power or uranium, they're designating this sector as a sustainability sector. So the uranium people have been saying for at least five years, maybe longer, maybe 10, that really the solution to our zero carbon goal is we need nuclear in the arsenal. Like we just simply do. Uh, it's steady. It's not like solar and wind, which can have issues. As we saw in Texas, what was that last winter where there's a big winter storm and they were, their power was cut, right? Because they weren't relying as much on fossil fuels. At least that was the narrative. So 
that was also interesting. You're seeing the EU, which is kind of seen as a bit more to the left than North America on these issues. So for them to designate nuclear as a kind of sustainable energy of sorts is remarkable. And Tim Gitzel does comment on that. So cool show lined up as we hit the, I think we can call them the dog days of summer are here. And so with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. Find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And wherever podcasts are available, including SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, uh, Bill Gates-backed firm is coordinating with Blue Jay Mining on Battery Metals by Cecilia Jamazmi. Uh, Cobalt Metals, a startup backed by a coalition of billionaires, including Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates and Amazon's founder and executive chairman Jeff Bezos, has partnered with Britain's Blue Jay Mining to explore for critical materials used in electric vehicles in Greenland. Cobalt, which uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to help find key minerals for green technologies, will pay $15 million in exploration funding for Blue Jay Mining's Disco Nuswak project on Greenland's west coast in exchange for a 51% stake in the project, Blue Jay said in a press release. You know, here comes tech. I, I think to me this is another warning shot fired that tech is coming for mining in a way that I'd like this story is just a tiny story from a press release, but that's what I see here. Uh, here comes the tech people with their AI. So you, all you juniors out there, yeah, I, you know, it never hurts to brush up on tech. You know, it's just, uh, that's just my take. You probably want to know what the bleeding edge of tech is in your field. And if you're in junior mining, what's the AI and machine learning thing that you should know about? Because these guys are coming for you and they're going to want 51% of your company uh, just to use their tech. So, and their capital. Shares in Blue Jay Mining skyrocketed on the news, trading up 25%. So the shares jumped. Uh, this is the highest the stock has traded since February 19th. And the, has, and the company has a market capitalization of $157 million. The Disco Nuswak license holds metals such as nickel, copper, cobalt, and platinum. And cobalt's funding will cover evaluation and initial drilling. Like these tech guys are not short on capital. They're probably going to take a completely different approach, which is going to be tech first. And we have a quote from Blue Jay CEO Bo Stensgard. Quote, this agreement is transformative for Blue Jay. Cobalt is an organization with the heft and technical capability to grow this project to its full commercial potential. And listen to this. I mean, you know, worlds collide as crypto collides with mining here. Cobalt's backers include big names such as venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz and Breakthrough Energy Ventures. So Andreessen Horowitz, which just created a huge crypto fund, a couple of billion dollars, I think, that they're investing to DeFi and various cryptocurrencies, they're backing Cobalt. So I think we better take a, you know, take note on Cobalt. There's something big is kind of brewing here. And this other company, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, is financed by well-known billionaires, including Michael Bloomberg, Ray Dalio, 
Richard Branson, as well as Bezos and Gates. So they have their fingers in that pie too, Bezos and Gates. So mining world, take note. Uh, this is why you listen to this podcast. So you can find out ahead of time what's going on. This is big. They're coming for you. So I don't know exactly what that means as far as strategically, but I think uh, this is a wake-up call. They're coming for you. And so here's another interesting detail. Kobold, as its chief executive officer, Kurt House, has stated many times, does not ever intend to be a mine operator. But we'll take 51% of your company, thank you, but you operate it. You do the dirty work for us. We'll just collect the money. And so the co this company is focused on searching for battery metals, a quest that began last year in Canada. It acquired rights to an area of about 1,000 square meters in northern Quebec, just south of Glencore's Raglan Nickel Mine. Further, Kobold aims to create a, quote, Google Maps, end quote, of the Earth's crust with a special focus on finding cobalt deposits. It collects and analyzes multiple streams of data, from old drilling results to satellite imagery, to better understand where new deposits might be found. Algorithms applied to the data collected determine the geological patterns that indicate a potential deposit of cobalt, which occurs naturally alongside nickel and copper. Somehow I have a feeling they're not just going to leave it at cobalt. Uh, the California-based firm also expects to bring in other investors, potentially including its current backers, on a deposit-by-deposit -deposit basis. It will also seek mining-savvy partners once it has identified an interesting project. Very interesting reporting from Cecilia Jamazmi. Uh, continuing on, the U.S., along those lines, has set a 50% target on electric vehicles by 2030. Uh, I think if you talk to Kathy Wood, she thinks it's going to happen a lot faster than that. I suspect she's right, but there's going to be a mandate now. It's by Northern Miner's staff. The United States has set a target to make half of all new passenger cars and light trucks sold in 2030 zero emissions vehicles. You know, if it's only passenger cars and light trucks and it's not going to be semi-trailers, it sounds a little weak, frankly, this whole uh, mandate. But I guess if law is law, so by 2030, they're not going to have a choice. And we have a quote from President Joe Biden. Quote, America must lead the world on clean and efficient cars and trucks. My administration will prioritize setting clear standards, expanding key infrastructure, spurring critical innovation, and investing in the American auto worker. In a joint statement by Ford General Motors and Stellantis, not Tesla, the automakers announced their shared aspiration to achieve sales of 40 to 50% of annual U.S. volumes of electric vehicles by 2030, in order to move the nation closer to a zero emissions future consistent with Paris climate goals. And then continuing from Biden, as I've said before, we're in competition with China and many other nations for the 21st century. To win, we're going to have to make sure the future will be made in America. Right now, China is leading the race and is one of the largest and fastest growing electrical vehicle markets in the world, and a key part of the electrical vehicle, to state the obvious, is the battery. And right now, as Anthony Malowski has told us, and right now 80% of the ma manufacturing capacity for these batteries is done in China. So interesting developments over in the US. Uh, they're really, they're making moves. You can see that these electric vehicle batteries, you know, a topic we've been on for years here, in the mining sector, it's now reached the president's desk. 
And just a couple of stories more that I'd like to just touch on here. The government of Quebec is funding the Monarch Gold's Beaufort Gold Mine. And this sounds like it's about jobs. They're giving $13.5 million in a loan uh, to Monarch Mining. And it's actually from Investissement Quebec. And it's not like a zero interest loan. It's at a rate of 6% a year until the restart of the mine and mill, 5% during the first year of production, and 4% for subsequent years. So it's kind of a win-win in this case. Investissement Quebec gets a nice interest rate. Monarch Mining reopens their mine, and it sounds like they're going to hire 100 people. Interestingly, they let go 150 when they shut down suspended operations in June 2019. So you wonder how much just automations and efficiencies have uh, played a part in that. So that's Monarch Gold. And as well, this Chilean law, uh, where it's a controversial mining royalty bill, has been delayed again. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi as well. And it's been delayed for three weeks. Uh, the Chile Senate has postponed for almost three weeks a vote on an opposition-sponsored bill that could hike taxes on miners by up to 75%, depending on the price of copper, the country's main export. The bill first introduced in 2018 calls for a 3% royalty on sales over 12,000 tons of copper production a year, that sounds like nothing, and 50,000 tons of lithium per year. Half the funds obtained from the royalty would go into a regional convergence fund to finance regional and communal development projects. You know, I have to say, uh, that does not sound promising. Uh, it's just going to go to some vague fund that politicians will allocate. That does not sound promising at all. The other half would directly finance projects to mitigate, compensate, or repair the environmental impact from mining activity in communities near mining projects. So who knows? I mean, uh, but yeah, like it, it doesn't sound, frankly, I think if you're going to do something like this, this sounds a little vague. That would be my criticism if I was in Chile's Senate, I'd be like, you guys want to do this? Like, we need more specific stuff because this is just ripe for uh, people taking advantage of this. You know, this looks like a slush fund in the making. My editorial there. The legislation, which faces multiple procedural hurdles, could risk some 1 million tons of annual copper output, representing about 4% of global production, according to Goldman Sachs. Now, this is very interesting when you contrast it with these articles we're seeing on mining.com on potential strikes happening in the copper sector in Chile, right? Like if we turn over to mining.com, this is a story they've had for the last couple of weeks. I mean, here it is, headline, Union at Casseroni's Copper Mine in Chile to Strike After Talks Collapse. And let's just quickly take a look at that, and then we're going to turn to metal prices. Workers at JX Nippon Copper's Casseroni's Mine in Chile will walk off the job on Tuesday after last-ditch talks over a collective labor contract collapsed on Monday, the union said. The government-mediated negotiations had gone nowhere, the union said, prompting its members to agree to the strike. Quote, it has not been possible to reach an agreement since the company has stated that it has no more budget in this negotiation, and therefore it is not in a position to deliver a new offer, end quote. The union said in a statement, several mines in Chile are in the throes of tense labor negotiations, including BHP sprawling Escondia, and Cadelco's Andina mines at a time when supply is already tight, leaving markets on edge. So, you know, 
mining sector in Chile is getting it from both sides, these copper producers. I mean, people pay attention when these commodities go up. Before you know it, the labor union's on one side, the government wants their cut uh, on the other. What looked like a great situation may turn out to be quite challenging for these companies as it goes. And so those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on August 10th, the 10-year bond is trading at 1.335%. And that is 0.18 higher than last week. So we haven't seen this kind of price for a month. It's back up to where it was a month ago. And meanwhile, gold is trading at $1,735.39 per ounce. That is $75 lower than last week. Silver is also lower at $23.65 per ounce. That is $1.79 lower than last week. Platinum is at $992.34 per ounce. That is $67 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,624.29 per ounce. That is $72 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is also trading 10 cents lower at $4.32 per pound. It is unchanged at $1.19 per pound. Lead is 3 cents lower at $1.07 per pound. Nickel is at $8.86 per pound. That is 16 cents lower than last week, and tin is 5 cents higher at $16.36 per pound. So tin is relentlessly higher, even though it's only a little bit, and cobalt is 2 cents lower at $23.76 per pound, and zinc is 2 cents lower at $1.36 per pound. So interesting with tin. The only metal that's higher, it shows just how tight that metal is. And otherwise, industrial metals stay elevated a slight, you know, I, I don't even want to call it a dip, just slightly edge lower a little bit. While precious metals show a noticeable decline, particularly gold and silver. Palladium is more or less steady. Platinum, nothing to write home about, but gold and silver do decline you know, what to make of that. Precious metals just are not keeping up with your industrial metals, but we shall see what happens next. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Tim Gitzel, CEO of Cameco, and he gives Cameco's Q2 conference call results. And it can't be easy being Mr. Gitzel because every quarter he has to come out and explain why the company is not profitable. And despite the outstanding fundamentals on the horizon, but as he says, the market is oversupplied. And I think this does not get stated enough. That is the problem in uranium. So anyways, don't take my word for it. Listen to Tim Gitzel and get the latest of what's going on in uranium. I hope you enjoy it and we will see you on the other side.
Well, thank you, Rochelle, and welcome to everyone on the call today. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. I hope you and your families are doing well and enjoying some rest and relaxation during the summer months. It's certainly the time of year when the uranium market tends to slow down as many participants step away for a summer break. Like I did in previous quarters, I'm going to start this call by reiterating our excitement for the future of the nuclear industry and for our role within that industry. The drivers of our optimism remain the same. First, there's an opportunity for nuclear power to play a pivotal role as the mega trend of increasing electrification while phasing out carbon intensive sources of energy continues to take hold around the globe increasing the certainty of demand for nuclear power with a durability that I don't think we've ever seen before. Second, uranium supply is becoming less certain due to years of persistently low prices. And finally, the execution of our Tier 1 strategy, although driving costs in the near term, ideally positions us to achieve our vision to energize a clean air world and deliver long-term sustainable value. It includes cutting our production below our committed sales volumes, being strategically patient in our marketing activities, conservatively managing our balance sheet, being vertically integrated across the nuclear fuel cycle, and pursuing new opportunities within the nuclear fuel cycle. Let's start with the fundamentals for nuclear energy. We're seeing a mega trend emerge, which is focused on increasing electrification, while at the same time achieving massive decarbonization goals. This mega trend has led to a mega challenge, that challenge being threefold. First, to bring safe, clean, and reliable baseload electricity to about one third of the population who currently have no access or limited access to electricity. Second, to clean up and replace our existing sources of electricity with a safe, clean, reliable, affordable, and carbon-free option. And finally, to transition away from the current use of thermal sources of energy for things like transportation and heating. This mega challenge of increasing electrification is occurring precisely while countries and companies around the world are focused on reducing their carbon footprint. Many have committed to achieving net zero carbon targets, and many more are expected to follow. And these clean air and climate change commitments, in particular by companies, are creating accountability. In the past, we have always been reliant on governments and public policy to take the lead. Now there are more than 1,600 companies who have made net zero commitments and will therefore play a critical role in shaping what energy policy will look like. Companies will no longer just be energy takers. They will be held accountable by their investors and other stakeholders for their performance on ESG metrics, including the carbon footprint of their supply chain, which of course includes energy. And they will need a source that can provide safe, clean, reliable, and affordable electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. And this accountability, or as we like to refer to it as, electron accountability, creates a durability and demand for nuclear we have not seen in previous cycles. In a world where 85% of our electricity still comes from fossil fuel sources, there's no clear pathway to sustainably achieve both electrification and decarbonization 
while maintaining a stable electricity grid without nuclear in the toolbox. In Europe, we see continued progress toward the inclusion of nuclear in the sustainable finance taxonomy. The European Commission has proposed a supplement to current legislation that, if passed, will confirm nuclear as sustainable. In the U.S., the Biden administration's 2022 fiscal year request for the Department of Energy's nuclear office was about $1.8 billion, which is the largest proposed nuclear investment ever in the U.S. In late June, five U.S. Democratic senators introduced the Zero Emission Nuclear Power Production Credit Act of 2021 that, if enacted, would provide federal production tax credits to support at-risk plants. Furthermore, we're seeing momentum building for non-traditional commercial uses of nuclear power, such as the development of small modular reactors and advanced reactors. Bill Gates and the company he co-founded, TerraPower, just announced plans to build a 345-megawatt next-generation reactor at a retiring coal power plant in Wyoming, a proposal which was well-received in the state. We at Cameco are exploring ways to further our reach in these innovative, non-traditional commercial uses of nuclear power and the nuclear fuel cycle. For example, we've made an investment in global laser enrichment. We're also participating in the Center for Next Generation Nuclear Technologies with Bruce Power. And we also recently entered a non-binding memorandum of understanding with GEH Hitachi Nuclear Energy and Global Nuclear Fuel Americas to explore several areas of cooperation to advance the commercialization and deployment of its small modular reactors in Canada and around the world. So the outlook for nuclear is very bright and we at Cameco are well positioned to respond to the growing need for nuclear fuel to generate safe, clean, reliable and affordable electricity. Increasing demand for nuclear means increasing demand for uranium. Which brings us to the second factor that I said is driving our growing optimism. Demand for uranium is rising at precisely the same time that supply is becoming less certain. One of the indicators we like to look at to illustrate the opportunity is uncovered requirements. We know that utilities have not been replacing what they consume annually under long-term contracts. Since 2011, about 1.6 billion pounds of uranium have been consumed in reactors and only about half of that, or 800 million pounds, have been placed under long-term contracts. This has led to a growing wedge of uncovered uranium requirements. The wedge is as big as it was back in the early 2000s, which was another period of complacency. And with the recognition of the importance of maintaining the existing nuclear fleet to meet net zero carbon targets, Reactor life extensions are expected to represent an additional source of near and medium term demand. Keep in mind, this is just talking about traditional demand. It does not consider any of the alternative uses of nuclear I talked about earlier. We're also seeing increased demand for uranium from financial funds and junior uranium companies. Through the end of June this year, more than $550 million US has flowed into the uranium market via junior uranium companies and financial funds. This money has been used to purchase approximately 16 million pounds of uranium with more expected. 
One of these funds has recently come under new management and transitioned to a uranium trust with a planned at-the-market feature, which it expects will result in more active spot market purchases and improved liquidity and price discovery. We believe there is growing recognition among these players that statistically, the current uranium price has a much greater likelihood of going up than down. This view is supported by the fundamentals. The growing uncovered requirements are occurring at a time when there are some big question marks about where the uranium will come from to fuel the world's expanding nuclear fleet. Cameco's supply curtailments alone, both planned and unplanned, along with our purchasing activity, have resulted in at least a 145 million pound swing in the supply fundamentals since 2016. And since the end of 2020, we've seen two long producing mines come to the end of their reserve life. The loss of the Ranger mine in Australia and the Kamenak mine in Niger will further reduce supply by about 7 million pounds per year. Our Cigar Lake mine is done about eight years from now, and that's another 18 million pounds per year that will be gone from the market. Given the timelines it takes, we should be investing now to replace that lost production, but at today's prices, it makes zero sense to invest in greenfield projects. In fact, given the persistently low prices, not only have we seen planned supply curtailments, lack of investment, and the end of reserve life for some mines, we've seen shrinking secondary supplies and trade policy issues, all of which have been amplified by unplanned supply disruptions. Consequently, primary supply has become concentrated. Concentrated geographically with about 80% of primary supply coming from countries that consume little to no uranium and nearly 90% of consumption occurring in countries that have little to no primary production. And it is highly concentrated by producer with about 70% of primary production in the hands of the top five producers and about 80% in the hands of state-owned enterprises. So we believe that in the current market, the risks to uranium supply are far greater than the risks to uranium demand. These are the fundamentals that get us excited and why we remain a pure play supplier of the uranium fuel needed to produce clean, carbon-free baseload electricity. Which brings me to the final factor driving our optimism, our strategy and why we remain committed to doing what we said we would do. Let me remind you what it is that we said we would do. First and foremost, this is where it all starts for us. We are focused on protecting the health and safety of our workers, their families, and their communities. We're doing that. Every day we make decisions about how best to manage our operations and protect and support our workforce. Earlier this month, we evacuated all non-essential personnel from the Cigar Lake mine and suspended production temporarily due to the proximity of a forest fire. Our fire preparedness was instrumental in successfully protecting our site and assets, and the proactive response from our site demonstrated the thoroughness of our risk management. Happily, and thanks to our preparedness, we were able to safely return the workforce to the site on July 4th and production resumed later that week. In addition, we continue to monitor the COVID-19 situation and have regular dialogue with public health authorities. 
Let me be clear. The health and safety of our workers will always be our priority. We will not hesitate to take further action if we feel our ability to operate safely is compromised. Second, apart from the disruptions to our operations, we have not wavered from the execution of our strategy. There are three fronts on which we are executing our strategy, operational, marketing, and financial. On the operational side, we've implemented our planned supply discipline, cutting production well below our delivery commitments. This includes the curtailment of production at Rabbit Lake, our U.S. assets, and of course at the MacArthur River Key Lake operation. These actions have left a lot of pounds in the ground and kept them off the market. Consequently, we've been purchasing material on the spot market to meet our committed deliveries. In addition, we have shown sales discipline, sticking to our value strategy. We have been strategically patient. We're seeing our patients pay off and we're continuing to build our contract portfolio. In addition to the nine million pounds added in April, we successfully finalized and executed a further seven million pounds under a number of sales contracts, which had been under negotiation, bringing the total for the year so far to 16 million pounds. Since 2019, that is a total of over 60 million pounds added to the contract portfolio. It's important to remember that our contracting activity is done within the context of global market realities. The primary driver for our contracting activity is always value. And while having great assets is a necessary condition for creating long-term value, it's not sufficient. The spot market is not the fundamental market in our business. It is a very thinly traded market. In our business, a responsible producer creates real value by building a long-term contract portfolio that supports the operation of productive assets, is leveraged to greater returns as prices increase, and provides downside protection. Therefore, to create long-term value where appropriate, we layer in volumes over time in accordance with market conditions. We do not want to commit our Tier 1 pounds too far into the future under contracts that won't generate an appropriate portfolio return, and we do not want to exhaust our Tier 1 assets in a low-price environment. As the market improves and we move outside of the carry trade window, we expect to continue to layer in volumes capturing greater upside using market-related pricing mechanisms. We also expect to lock in value at higher prices to carry that value through the next price cycle, always with a view to our preference for a 60-40 split of market-related and fixed-price contracts. We continue to have a large pipeline of uranium business under negotiation. In fact, we continue to see off-market interest growing and historically, it has been a leading indicator of broader demand for long-term contracting. We're having conversations with many of our customers. These customers recognize the long-term fundamentals. They want access to long-lived Tier 1 productive capacity from commercial suppliers who have a proven operating track record. They understand that from a security of supply perspective, today's prices do not reflect production economics. They recognize the first mover advantage gained from securing their future access to our Tier 1 pounds today as opposed to in the future. And we have some competitive advantages. We have significant idle Tier 1 capacity that is fully licensed and fully permitted 
that will be among the first pounds to meet growing demand in the market. We are an independent commercial supplier and provide our customers supply diversity from state-owned enterprises. With substantial Canadian productive capacity, we can help de-risk their future supply from trade policy exposure. And emerging is a focus on ESG matters, which is great news for us. At Cameco, serving the interests of our stakeholders has always been at the heart of what we do, long before there was a focus on ESG issues, because it's the right thing to do, and we recognize the significant business value that it adds. Our board and our employees, contractors, communities, suppliers, customers, governments, and our providers of capital expect us to manage this company in a long-term sustainable fashion. We're very proud of our over 30-year commitment to protect, engage, and support development of our people and their communities and to protect the environment. So we're well positioned to sustainably meet our customers' needs. And finally, on the financial side, we have been very deliberate in shoring up our balance sheet. At the end of the second quarter, we again were in a negative net debt position with $1.2 billion in cash, $1 billion in long-term debt, and a $1 billion undrawn credit facility. As such, we have the financial capacity to self-manage risk and maintain our strategic resolve. So I'm happy to say that we're performing well on all three strategic fronts. However, there are costs to our strategic decisions which are reflected in our financial results and the outlook for 2021. As a mining company, there is significant cost to not operating our mines, which is why having Cigar Lake running is a critical part of our strategy. Yet imagine where the market might be today had we not curtailed supply and purchased uranium. There would be more than 145 million pounds and growing above ground and available to the market. We've made responsible and deliberate decisions to preserve the value of our Tier 1 assets in an oversupplied market and, in the case of Cigar Lake, to protect the health and safety of our workforce. The largest of these costs are for care and maintenance of the assets we have on standby and the cost of the uranium we must purchase to replace lost production. Let's put these costs into perspective. In 2021, care and maintenance costs are expected to represent between $7.40 and $9.35 Canadian per pound. That's about 15 to 20% of our expected average unit cost of sales. And our purchase costs to replace production are expected to be about 20% or $7 Canadian per pound, higher than production costs at Cigar Lake for the past two years, further increasing our unit cost of sales. The good news is they do not represent the run rate of our business. We planned with these costs in mind and we expect much better days ahead once we return to Tier 1 cost structure. We're taking the steps today to support the future restart of our Tier 1 assets and to create a more flexible asset base. We want an asset base that allows us to align our overall production decisions with our contract portfolio commitments and opportunities, that allows us to eliminate the care and maintenance costs incurred while our Tier 1 production is suspended, and that allows us to benefit from the very favorable life of mine economics our assets provide. 
We're confident in our ability to transition through this period and capture demand that will provide leverage to higher prices. And we have concluded that we have the right vision, strategy and values to deliver long-term sustainable value. Our vision, which is to energize a clean air world, recognizes that we have an important role to play in enabling the vast reductions in greenhouse gas emissions required to achieve a resilient, net-zero carbon economy. As we seek to achieve our vision, we are committed to doing it in a manner that reflects our values. Those values have not changed. They have always guided our actions, and they place a priority on safety in the environment, on building and supporting a flexible, skilled, stable, and diverse workforce, on behaving with integrity and leading by example, on promoting equality and acting to eliminate racism wherever it exists, and on pursuing excellence in all that we do and inspiring others to do the same. Our actions are deliberate. We are a responsible, commercially motivated supplier with a diversified portfolio of assets, including a Tier 1 production portfolio that is among the best in the world. We are well positioned to take advantage of a market where demand for nuclear power, both traditional and non-traditional, is growing. Where we believe the risk to uranium supply is greater than the risk to uranium demand. And where we believe our strategic decisions and strategic patience provide us with resiliency in the face of unprecedented challenges and will result in the rewards that will come from having low-cost supply to deliver into a strengthening market. So thank you for joining our call today, and operator with that, we would be happy to answer any questions. You know what else I found interesting about this was how they were continuing their spot market buys. They've been doing that for years now. Like imagine if they hadn't done that. If, imagine if they hadn't shut down Port Hope in Ontario during COVID, like they shut down Cigar Lake during COVID. Where would the uranium price be had they not done that? Had they not kept on buying from the spot market? Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you're having a wonderful summer. So long, arrivederci from Bologna, Italy. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. And until next week, take care.